Okay, good morning, and uh, good to be back with you today. I uh, just, uh, my surgery went fine, although I really still can't see well because none of my glasses now work with my eyes. So, <laughs> uh, but, uh, and I can't go for another month or month and a half or something like that. But anyway, anyway, and uh, as to my wife, Kathy, uh, she does not have pancreatitis, the uh, urgent care misdiagnosed. They, uh, they ran blood work before they realized she was dehydrated, and then they gave her fluids, and then guess where her blood work went? Back where it belonged. <laughs> so anyway, I got her, Monday I got her into an internist to put her through a bunch of tests and pumped a bunch more fluid into her. She's just very weak, and she tried to get up to come to church today and basically went back to bed. So anyway, uh, uh, well, she didn't. She went to her chair in the living room. But any, anyway, anyway, so I... Appreciate your prayers, and sorry for last week not being here, but uh, uh, that's kind of the way life has been. Uh, we've been spent most of the week in doctor's offices. So anyhow, uh, this morning we're going to be looking at uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 28, uh, kind of conclude this chapter. Uh, here he is going to be talking about the new covenant, um, not so much in its terms, but uh, although some of those are involved here, but, but more in, in how Christ initiated it uh, by his death and by the shedding of his blood. It's, it, it really focuses on the fact and of, of the, the sacrificial death of Christ. And you have to understand, as we read this in our time, we don't probably catch the full significance that these Hebrew Christians in the first century would have uh, would have uh, uh, would have uh, have felt this with. You understand that they came from a background of continual sacrifices, constant sacrifices, and of course the annual uh, Day of Atonement, which were the the days that that their sins were covered. And they have to now come to grips with the once and for all sacrifice of Christ, and that system is now terminated. That's, that's, the, that's what they are dealing with. And, of course, they're having a difficult time with it. It's like anything else, any, any change. Change never comes easy, you know. I, I don't like change, but, uh, uh, unfortunately, the one consistency in life is change. Uh, so, uh, uh, that's what's happening here. And it's, it is a change, but it's really an upgrade, if you will. Uh, that's, that's what's going on. The old covenant was put into place, and we'll, we're going to talk about it a little bit this morning, because he goes back to it. He, the, the author of Hebrews introduces a subject uh, brings back up the subject from before, goes back to the new subject, back to the old subject, back to the new subject. He just he keeps repeating things throughout the book, and 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 that is true here. So it's kind of important to understand that the the mindset of of a first century Hebrew Christian. They're living in a in a culture that that first of all rejected their Messiah, and these have accepted him but are being pressured by family and the society in which they have grown up to say, you're wrong, what's wrong with you? Why are you following this guy? You know, that's kind of the, kind of the idea that's going on here. And they, they're going, they're, they're also, excuse me, they're also going on to the point of saying, you know, if that's where you're going to go, then don't come to dinner anymore. You know, and oh, by the way, you're out of the family business. Oh, and by the way, you're out of the family inheritance. They're being cut off. So there's a lot of pressure on these people. And so the, the author here is giving detail into how the covenants have changed, how they have grown, how they have become, and the word is better. Uh, and and uh, so we will, we will be talking about that as we go through the text this morning. Uh, before we do, are there any other uh, prayer, are there any prayer requests this morning? I have a praise and 
poor. I get altogether better, but thank you. Uh, God has been so merciful to me, and I'm grateful. Okay. Hi, I'm Lolita Dwyer. I'm from Grace Commando Bible Church in Jupiter. Mm-hmm. Pastor Jared, I'm here visiting my sister, Susanna, for three weeks, and she has aggressive lupus. So if you could be praying for her. Okay. What was her name again? Susanna. Susanna, okay. Ed, would you open us this morning? Father, we thank you for an opportunity to learn from your word. Father, for your goodness, we thank you, Lord. We pray for this young lady, your lupus, Lord, that you would be with her through this, Lord, and have your way there, Lord. We thank you for this day and the opportunity to hear your word and apply it to our lives. In your name, amen. Amen. Okay, this morning we're going to, we're going to uh, break this text down uh, the way I broke it down anyway. Uh, there's nothing inspired about this, by the way. So, uh, you know, but uh, at, at any rate, uh, uh, we're going to break it down. Verse 15 is, uh, talks about Christ's death in the first covenant, 16 through 17. Talks about Christ's blood producing forgiveness and Christ, tw- uh, or in uh, 23 through 28, Christ's sacrifice is perfect. And uh, uh, it's, it kind of flows the, just as the communion does the elements, first of all, the death, the body, and secondly, the blood. <laughs> That's kind of the way the text is going to flow as we go through this. So it begins in verse five, 15. We'll look at verse 15 first. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since, since a death has occurred that redeemed them from the transgression committed under the first covenant. So he says, he, he begins by, by bringing us back to the fact that he's a text he's already introduced, that Christ is the mediator. He is the one who stands between God and man and between man and God. He is the one who mediates on our behalf. Uh, that's, uh, that's the first thing that he, he brings to our attention, that Christ is the mediator. And, and of course, this, this, uh, this text begins with one of my favorite biblical words, therefore, uh, unless you have a New American Standard or a King James, in which case it's, it's something like, I think the King James says, for this cause, and the New American Standard says, for this reason, which basically means, therefore, based upon what I previously said, here's what I'm going to say now. That's, that's, that's what it's there for. And uh, it brings us back uh, to, uh, to the, the, the past text, the beginning text in verse 9 primarily, and uh, especially verses 13 and 14, uh, which, which read, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled, per- um, um, and, and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify the conscience purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And it's kind of important to understand something here. Those verses came off of a little bit earlier uh, when he told us that the Old Covenant couldn't clear the conscience. It couldn't do it. That's why it needed replacing. It was unable It only made a temporal covering. That was the problem. It could not purify our conscience. Uh, Note verses 7 and and 8 before we got. But into the second, only the high priest could go, talking about the Holy of Holies, that only the high priest could go. And and once a year, uh, and not without taking blood, which he offered for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, uh, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet open as long as the sec- as long as the first section is still standing which is symbolic of the present age according to this arrangement gifts and sacrifices are offered and cannot perfect the conscience of the worshipper now, that's the old covenant the old covenant couldn't perfect the conscience it only pertained to certain things that's the that, that was the problem with it uh, but uh, it was because Christ was able to clear the conscience by his sacrifice. That's, that's the necessity of the new covenant. Uh, the old covenant could only kind of keep you temporarily okay. 
it didn't heal you. That's, that's really, it was a band-aid in, in effect. So we, so we look back, the first covenant uh, is uh, explained in Exodus 24, uh, 1 through 8. That's where it was established. That's the establishment of the Mosaic covenant. Uh, and uh, in that covenant, well, God made a covenant between himself and the Israelites. It had two parties, God and the Israelites. Uh, he had a, there was a solemn promise or a commitment uh, based upon the context of the book of the covenant. Uh, so, so that was the, the terms of this, uh, uh, this, uh, uh, this agreement. A covenant in our day would probably be called the contract. Uh, that's, it's an agreement between parties. That's, that's the idea. It also has some more significance that we'll see as we move along as he's going to use a, a word that has a, a little bit different uh, uh, context to that. Secondly, the covenant was sealed with the death of an animal. Uh, that uh, that were offered to God. The animal's blood was sprinkled on the altar and the people. Uh, this established the covenant. It was a uh, ancient Near Eastern practice uh, that demonstrated uh, uh, the importance of the con- of the contract, uh, and it's n- and it's not to be broken is really the the idea that that goes on with that. And the covenant was ratified by the people who promised to observe all the ordinances that God had established, which, of course, they never did do. Which is why later on the Day of Atonement has to be put into place, which we will, we will see in a little bit. The new covenant basically comes out of the old and, ha- and carries the same characteristics. It, it also is a contract between God and the people. And it is sealed by a death and by blood, only not an animal this time, but the Messiah. That's, that's, that's the, the major difference here. Uh, both present sacrifice. The old only atoned, that is, it was a kapora. It covered, it simply covered the transgressions of the people. It was a temporary fix that had to be repeated annually. Whereas in the New Covenant... We were redeemed in full. The price was paid, and it is no longer exacted. And it sets the conscience free. That's, that's what its terms are. In the Old Covenant, the high priest was the mediator, who himself was imperfect, which is, which is why he had to, had to offer sacrifices for himself, before he could go in, because he too was was a sinner, and and in need of need of uh, a kapora, a covering as well, before he could offer for the people. In the new covenant, Jesus is the mediator, and in his case, he put the law in our hearts and minds, resulting in the fact that we can know God, and that we can enjoy fellowship with him. Those are, those are the terms. Those are the differences in the covenants. And it goes on to say that Christ is a mediator of the new, results in the called, those whom God has called by his grace into his, his presence, applies not only to you and me, but it, it applies to all of those who, by faith, put their faith in, in, in the coming Messiah from the Old Testament. Now, that's how Old Testament saints got saved. They look forward to the cross. We look back to the cross. That's, that's the, the simple truth of it all. Uh, and, and we will see that delineated quite well in chapter 11 when we go through what, they, what most today call the Hall of Faith. Incidentally, the word faith is used 33 times in the book of Hebrews. I counted them. But anyway, anyway it's used 33 times. It's a big theme in this book. And, and that's what he's saying here. He's saying, he's saying this, is, this is where we are. Uh, both the old covenant saints who put their hope and their trust in the coming Messiah and the New Testament saints who look back and receive the sacrifice that he made at Calvary, they're saved. They're the called. That's who he's, he's talking to here. They, they, they are the ones who are called. <clears throat> Romans chapter 3, verses 24 and 25. 
Well, let's, let's back up to 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This is to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. That's, that's what Christ's sacrifice accomplished. It accomplished all of these things. And, and it, it made it possible for us to come into his presence since a death has occurred. That's the, that's the idea here. It required a death to ratify these contracts. And that's what, that's what he's wanting these Hebrews to understand. He's, he's understanding the new covenant came out of the old covenant. It's an improvement upon it. And it too was put in place the same way as the old, by sacrifice, by death, and by blood. That's what, those are the things he's, he's pointing out here. And, and the result here is redemption. That's what he, he says in this text. He says, he says, he says it, it has occurred to redeem them from the transgressions. That is to buy them out of the slave market. It redeemed them, you know. It's it's like you go in and redeem a, redeem a coupon or something, you know. Only this is uh, quite a coupon. Because it redeems us from eternal death. It redeems us from our sin. That's the, that's the important thing here. Uh, he redeems them from the transgressions that were listed under the Old Covenant. And it basically was everything. But anyway, it was listed under the Old Covenant. Galatians 3 is a powerful text. I really don't want to go through the whole, the whole thing, but it delineates the law and what the law was all about. And it tells us that the law was there as a tutor. I think it says in the New American Standard, the, the ESV says, says as a guardian, which is really a better word, because the word tutor implies a teacher, someone who instructs, right? You know, if you're in college and you're not having a good time in uh, in uh, calculus four or five or whatever it is, you know, advanced calculus, you go to the tutor to get through that class. Because if you're a science major, you don't get through it without calculus. You know, that's just the way it is. And, uh, 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 and that tutor helps you get through it. Well, that's not who this guy was. The guardian is spoken of here in Galatians. That guardian was a, was a slave that the father of the house put in charge of his son to make sure, who was basically a disciplinarian, it's his job, he was to make sure the kid did everything right. That he did his homework, that he got to school, that he got up and brushed his teeth, that he ate his breakfast. It's kind of like when I was a sergeant in the Army, that's what I had to do. But at any rate, at any rate that's, the, that's, the, that's the, the point here. That's what the law was all about. It was a guardian to keep us in place until Christ came. Look at verses, uh, uh, what are the verses I wanted to look at? Well, I don't want to read the whole text, but look at verses 23 through 26. 23 through 26 says, Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that, he might, that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under the guardian. For in Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. That, that's the outcome of the new covenant. It has made us sons through faith. We are in the inheritance now is basically the idea. The idea here is the law has become a, a tutor or a guard to lead us to Christ to the internal inheritance of our salvation. And you understand, for the Jews, according to 1 Corinthians, the whole idea that the Messiah had to die was a stumbling block. That was the thing that had to be overcome by them. They had to understand why Messiah needed to die. He needed to die in order that they could be redeemed. They didn't understand that. And all of this was predicted in the Old Testament. Psalms 22, Isaiah 53. It all was predicted. All they had to do was read their scriptures. But they didn't. But secondly, he goes on from there. He goes on from there and he talks about 
that Christ's blood now produces forgiveness in 16 through 22. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not enforced as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood, and and wherever command uh, and whenever command and what whenever commandment every commandment of the law I told you I can't see yet. <laughs> Now I lost my place. Every commandment of the law, uh, every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people. He took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and and hossop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So he lays out this idea here now. And and so we come into this. The first thing we need to note is he changed words here in English. He didn't change them in Hebrew. This is the same word as covenant, where he says will. Uh, covenant is the, is the religious setting for the word of a contract between God and man. That's the religious setting, of that word. But it's the same word. That word used as will, which it can be translated that way, is the legal setting. So the contract was the will and testament of God to his people. That's, that's, in effect, what he's saying here. And, and he, he just makes it, I mean, it's, it's an obvious statement that he makes that follows that. Wills go into effect when the, when, the, when the person who made the will dies, not before. Now, you may have, you may have allowances given to you uh, from the will before you die. They're called, they're called uh, uh, I forgot what it is, trust funds, you know, that kind of a thing. But the will, the terms of the will, are not enacted till someone dies. And you notice that he, it's kind of interesting how he put it here, too, because for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. They don't read the will the day the person dies. They do it after you give them the death certificate. It has to be established. They have to know that this occurred. It has to be certified. That's, that's the point here. It has to be, it has to have come to pass. You can't just go in and say, hey, you know what? Tom died. I want my inheritance. That's just not the way it works. That's not the way it works. And that's, that's what he's saying here. He's making the point that it wasn't established until a death took place. The death of Messiah is who he's, who he's pointing to. Uh, he, he, so he says, he says, the will only takes effect at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. It, it's there, it's going to be yours, but it's not in effect until the one dies. That's the point. A death had to occur for the, for the will or the covenant to go into effect. And the point here is back to verse 15. Is, is basically telling us that Christ, the mediator of the new covenant, had to die a sacrificial death to redeem those named in the will, the called. That had to occur. In verse 16 and 17, the will's inheritance became effective, that is, the new covenant went into effect upon that death. Back to Galatians 3. 24 through 25 that we looked at earlier. That's where it went into effect. It didn't go into effect before that. So then he goes on, uh, having established that uh, kind of uh, statement that would be obvious to, to anybody that knows anything about wills. It would be an obvious statement. He goes on and he says there in verse 418, therefore, once again, based upon the fact that the death took place, therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood, for when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and with scarlet wool and with hyssop 
And he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Now, when you look at this text, if you've read Exodus, and you read the account in Exodus, you know that there's a whole lot more here than Exodus had to say. Because there was no tabernacle when the text of Exodus was written. There was no utensils. Uh, There was none of that stuff. He sprinkled the people and the book. That's all. But this gives us delineated thing about blood and the sprinkling of blood. What he has done, what the author of Hebrews has done here is he's combined everything that went on from, from Exodus through to Deuteronomy almost, in effect. All of the Levitical laws that were put into place, all of the things that Numbers talks about that were authorized. In fact, what he has brought in, the text that he has brought in to play here are Leviticus 16, uh, 3 through 28, Leviticus 14, uh, 4 and 6, and Numbers 19, 9, 6, and 18. All of those places talk about where blood authorized, very or blood purified various elements of the worship of Israel. He's, he's combined them all under one. It includes the Day of Atonement. It includes the establishment of the tabernacle and the the instruments of the tabernacle. He's basically showing you that while the covenant itself was initiated with blood, everything that came under that covenant was also purified by blood. That's that's what he's doing here. He didn't he didn't he didn't lose track of things. He knows what he's what he's trying to do. He's letting us know all of this is all of this is the point. They were all sprinkled with blood. <clears throat> the altar, the people, uh, he, he uses uh, from the Exodus passage all the way through the day and includes the Day of Atonement. He uses this to give a clear picture of what that atonement involved. It all had to be purified by blood. And he says, and if you look at Exodus 24, 8... It reads, Behold, the blood of the covenant that has been made for you. Is that reminiscent of anything you've ever heard? Like maybe Matthew 26, 28, For this is the blood of my covenant. Do this in remembrance of me. Also Mark 14, 24, Leviticus 22, 20, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five. It's the same idea. The new covenant was established by blood. The old covenant was established in blood. This was the this was the important. This is the this is the idea that is being expressed here. Those Hebrews needed to understand that. There's no difference here. The difference is the value of that covenant, the value of that blood, the ex, the extremity that it went to is the idea. Both the old and new were established in the same way. That's, that's what he's wanting them to understand. In verse 21, he says, In the same way he sprinkled with blood both the tent and the vessels that were used in worship. In other words, everything that went on in worship was, was initiated and was established in blood, if you will. Verse 22 goes, goes on to say, Indeed, under the law, most everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. This is kind of a kind of an important passage. It, it, it tells us something about the Old Covenant that's a little bit different from the New Covenant. There was an exception. There was an exception. And in fact, it's noted in a couple of places. The most, the most uh, clear one, however, is in... <clears throat> excuse me. Is, uh, is, is, the, is the idea that the extremely poor, the extreme poor... We're not excluded from from the system. Is basically the idea here. Uh, in that text, the extreme poor were allowed to give. Uh, I think it was a. It's like the equivalent of two pints of flour as an offering. It wasn't a blood offering. It was it was that. And it's so he says with 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 almost without exception. There was exception. 
under the new covenant, there is no exception because the blood is freely given by Christ. It's not you bringing a sacrifice. Christ brought the sacrifice. There's a, there's a difference here. Uh, Leviticus 17, verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. In other words, the sacrificial death is a requirement. That's what he's pointing to here. He's saying, he's saying look, here's the, here's the facts of the things. Yeah, there, there was a, a small exception for people who were extremely poor. God wanted no one left out. And he made sure they were included. That's no longer necessary because it is Christ who was making the sacrifice and he covered all. That's, that's the idea. His, his sacrifice is totally sufficient. It's sufficient to do the work it was called to do. And that's what, that's what he's, he's, he's pointing to here. He says, but under the law, yeah, there was this exception. But most everything was covered by blood because it is by by a sacrificial death, which is exemplified by blood. Whenever you hear the word, in fact, I, I challenge you if you want to do this, go through the New Testament. Any place it talks about the blood of Christ, within a, within a short distance of that text, if not in the same text, it will also talk about his death. Because the two cannot be separated. You don't separate them. It was a sacrificial death by bloodletting. The blood, that, that, those two elements are, that's why we celebrate the body and the blood. Those two elements ha- are always go together. They're not separate. When I was in seminary, MacArthur's book on uh, Hebrews came out, his commentary. And he makes a big deal about that point. I mean, he really emphasizes the point of he had to die. It wasn't he bled and you got saved. He had to die. He makes a big to-do about that. Well, some of the real fundamentalists went ballistic. I mean, they went totally ballistic. And they, uh, they were attacking him that he was denying the blood. Well, if you read his commentary, that's just stupid. But anyway, you know, because there's other places where he very clearly delineates the importance of the blood. But, but that whole thing was going on. And there was one guy. His name, his name was, I, I think he's gone now, but his name was Wally Beebe. And I forgot exactly what the name of his organization was, but he, he published a uh, newspaper kind of thing. or a, uh, Today it would probably be a podcast, but back then it was, you know, he published this paper that he put out. And it was called uh, something, I forgot the, the full title, but it had to do, The Fundamental View the fundamental doctrinal view of the bus ministry or something like something like that. It was really, it had all these terms in it, you know, it was about this long. And he writes, he, he writes in this paper that the, the, the orthodox doctrine of the Christian church is and always has been that Christ carried his blood into heaven as a, and, and it is there today making intercession for us. Seriously, blood talks. No, that's not true. Christ's blood went on the ground. It was shed for you. It didn't go into heaven. We're going to see that in just a minute here. We're going to see that in just a minute. He's going to tell us that. But anyway, at any rate, to make my story short and to tell on me a little bit, in those days, I guess the seminary still does this. I don't know. I graduated a day or two ago. 1989, the students had to serve time with the pastor of the day. And the pastor of the day job was to take calls that came in from people. And they might be anybody. They might be a church member. I remember one time some lady called in, and the ladies' Bible study was having an argument over a Hebrew word and something they were looking at, you know. And we just diverted it to Dr. Busnitz that was... Irv, not Nate. <laughs> yeah, that was Nate was a ten-year-old boy in those days. Uh, but any, but at any rate, uh, and he answered the question for the ladies, you know. But uh, in this one particular case, this pastor who was on the East Coast 
who was surrounded by Bob Jones graduates. I don't know if you know anything about Bob Jones, but uh, Bob Jones University is probably the bastion of legalistic fundamentalism in America. Now, their doctrine on salvation is orthodox, but their practice is harsh. And uh, um, uh, they have forever attacked MacArthur over something. They're always looking for something. And they were kind of on this guy because he kind of thought MacArthur was okay. And so he were on this guy. So he, he calls in about this, what they're telling him about this commentary. And the guy hands me the phone. You know, now understand, this commentary just got released. I'm a seminary student, not studying Hebrews. So the last thing on my book list is a new commentary. I've never even seen it. <laughs> so I asked the guy, do you have the commentary? He goes, yeah. And he hands it to me. And I look up the passage and I'm reading through it and I'm going, what are you talking about? He's not denying the blood here. You know, he's, there's no denial of blood here. So I'm talking with this guy, and the guy says, uh, he, we talked a little bit, and I kind of went through, well, he said this. This is what he said. That's not denying the blood. He's, he's, he's just saying that we can't overemphasize the one over the other. That, you know, the death, it's death and blood. It's both. And, and uh, so the guy says, well, you know, sometimes when I preach, I try to overemphasize a point. Do you, do you think maybe Dr. MacArthur was doing that in this text? And the genius here says to the guy, I think it's perfectly okay for you to say that. <laughs> and the guy went, okay, thank you. <laughs> and the pastor of the day didn't correct me or anything. But on the way home, my buddy who was with me in the in the, at the time, the two of us commuted together, so they would send us to things like this together. He goes, I'm sure, he, I'm sure John MacArthur will be very happy to know one of his seminary students is correcting his theology. <laughs> well, I wasn't attempting to correct his theology because uh, that, wouldn't, that wouldn't be exactly correct, but uh, uh, I was uh, trying to help this guy. So, at any rate... You don't separate the two. That's, this text doesn't. The first part talked about death. Now we're talking about blood. The two go together, and they have to go together. Uh, they are both elements of the sacrifice Christ made. He had to die, and he had to bleed. Those two elements go together. They cannot be separated. That's, that's the point. Leviticus 17, 11. Those animals didn't, weren't, they didn't bleed the animals and sprinkle the blood. They killed them. That's, 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 the, that's, the, that's the thrust of this text. Now we're going to go, go to the final part of this text. Christ's sacrifice is perfect in verses 23 through 28. In verse 23, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. There's the thrust that throws Wally Beavy out of the window. You know, he, this is not what it's saying. There's no blood involved here in heaven. That's, that's important. For Christ has entered into the holy place made with hands, which is a copy of the truth, true things, which with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, not to appear in the presence of, uh, uh, to appear, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have not suffered repeatedly since the, for then he would have suffered repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once and for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so God having been, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly await him. I'm sorry for botching that. But at any rate, as we come to this, verse 23 tells us, tells us this. Uh, and incidentally, 23 is the main point of the, of the whole section of 1913 through 1018. 
This is the this is the central point of what he's getting to. The central point is this. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. Okay, that was a necessity. Those things on earth that were only copies of what was in heaven had to be purified. They were not pure in and of themselves. They had to be purified. That's, that's what he's saying here. And then he goes on and he says, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. In other words, Christ's sacrifice. The heavenly things didn't need to be purified. They were pure. But in order for you to enter heaven, Christ's sacrifice was necessary. Christ's sacrifice didn't purify heaven. It purified those who enter. It made entrance possible. That's the, that's the thrust here. That's the thrust that he's going on here. He says it was necessary. It was required by law. The copies were, were purified by the death of the animal and the shedding of his blood. The Levitical priest entered. Chapter 8, verse 5 tells us that they were a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. Uh, the heavenly things themselves, Christ entered, were better that's a word that runs throughout this book. Christ is better. That's the point of this book, incidentally, that Christ is better in every way. The idea is not that the heavenly things needed to be purified, for they, uh, for they are in heaven uh, itself, verse 24, but that Christ specifically made it possible for us to enter heaven by his blood. He made us fit to enter. Why can you enter into the, into the, the heavenlies? Because Christ made it so, by his sacrifice. You can't do it on your own. You would die. It's Christ's blood that brings you there. It's his sacrifice. It's his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of God. By his sacrifice, we enter heaven. That's what verse 23 is wanting us to know. Verse 24 goes on, and he says, and he says, for, for Christ has entered into the holy place, may, uh, in, not into a holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true, true thing, but into heaven itself. In other words, he didn't go, incidentally, there's no record in the New Testament that Christ ever entered the Holy of Holies in the temple. You know why? He's not a Levite. Only Levites could go in there. He's from Judah. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is, he is of the kingly line. He didn't enter that copy on earth. That was not his territory. His territory was in heaven. That's what it's telling us here. That's, that's where he went. He, made, he didn't go into a man-made sanctuary. He went into a God. He went into the very heaven itself. Incidentally, the sanctuary in heaven is heaven. You understand there's, there's no altar there. There's no dividing curtain between this room and that room. There's no outer court. There's no women's court and men's court. There's no, there's no walls uh, of separation there. There are no, there are no, there are candlesticks. But there aren't, there aren't all these altars for sacrifice. There's the throne of God. That's, that's where he went. That's, that's what this is saying. That's the idea. This is what he's saying here. He went into the presence of God himself on our behalf. You know, that's a powerful thought. Christ did all of this, entered into heaven, so I could. That's what this is telling us. That's, That's extremely powerful. That's how we gain entrance. That's, that's, that's what he's wanting us to know. And then, he's, then he goes on in verse 25, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place year after year with blood not his own. And this is kind of an important, this is kind of an important uh, text for the Hebrews because they need to understand this. Understand, they were used to annual sacrifices, the day of atonement. The Passover, the daily sacrifices to cover the, the, the sins of the day, 
you know, those those things. They had special cleansing rites and all of this kind of stuff to make it make themselves accessible to worship. And this this text is telling us that's what they were used to. That's what they had come from. That was their culture. That was their heritage. But this is telling them, no, it's done. It's done because Christ has made the final sacrifice. There is no more sacrifice. There is nothing else to do. And Christ doesn't do it over and over again. He did it once. Once. He doesn't go in like the high priest every year and do it over and over and over. That's what, that's what he's telling them here. This, this is not the way it's done. He, he did it one time. You understand the high priest only made it a kapora, a covering for their sin. Christ removed it. That's the, that's the thrust here. The sin has been removed. And incidentally, it's, re, it's retroactive all the way back from Adam to whoever the last individual of the called is. I think I said that right. But anyway, that's, that's the idea here. Hebrews 9.28, when we get there. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins for many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly wait on him. That's that's where we're going with all of this. That's what he's saying. Now, there's there's a second idea to this that I'm sure the Holy Spirit knew would come down the road and that needs to be addressed. It's a doctrinal issue that needs to be addressed. Uh, it didn't uh, really come into play until the 1500s, in 1543 and in 1560, no, 1545 and 63, there was a church council, Roman Catholic Church, convened a council called the Council of Trent. Um, at the Council of Trent, the dogmas of the Roman Catholic Church were delineated in I guess you would say their defense against the Reformation. I guess would be the way you could put it. In that council, one of the doctrines was this, that was this, or not doctrines but dogmas was established was the perpetual sacrifice dogma, which basically says that the mass is the continually Offering of Christ's sacrifice. Week after week after week. That's why, that's why when you will go into a Catholic church, there's a cross with Christ hanging on it. Because they continually sacrifice him. It's a dogma that was established at the Council of Trent. It is totally heretical. Right here. It tells you. He did it once, it's done. He said that on the cross, I think. It is done. It is done. So they're making it very plain. He's making it very plain here. He says, for then, when he, um, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. In other words, it would have to go on from, from before at, or I guess, well, he says before the foundation of the world. So since before Adam till... Eternity. Once. It's done. That's, that's important to understand. And then he goes on in the second part of 26, and he says, he says, but as it is, he's appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. There it is. Once. It's done. It's finished. That's what he's wanting you to see. Christ coming into the world, he put away sin. Uh, the way this is constructed, uh, says, but as it is, that, that phrase, but as it is, but as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of age to put away sin, that as it is, basically the way the Hebrew construction of that word is, in some texts it says now, um, 
it'll, it'll say now. That will be the way, way it is. That's a word that basically isn't talking about time so much as is a statement of fact. That, that's, that's the idea here. It means this is how it really is. That's what it means. This is how it really is. That's, that's the thrust here that they want you to have. The, the plain truth of the matter is this is how it is. He has appeared once and for all. That's, 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 what, that's what the thrust of this verse wants you to understand. Once and for all. And he says, and when he says at the end of the age, this doesn't mean at the end of time. Uh, it means it, it has the, the concept here of, and it, it doesn't even mean that, uh, uh, that it happened at the time of fulfillment, uh, but it has the idea that it's coming and his actions and the, the sacrifice that he made, uh, that they are the fulfillment. And the old age has ended, is, is really the idea here. And, and, of course, the purpose here was to put away sin. 1 John 3, 5 tells us this, this same idea. You know that he appeared in order to take away sin, and in him there is no sin. That's, that's, that's what he's wanting us to understand as we come to this part of the text. And then he says, after that comes judgment, and this is a logical sequence. Ecclesiastics uh, twelve fourteen. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Uh, judgment is uh, here introduced. It, it is discussed more fully in chapter 10. He doesn't go into it any more than that here. He's just introducing to it here. But what he wants us to understand is in verse 28, that's the reality for those who are not in Christ. They face judgment. But verse 28 tells us salvation to, their, salvation to those who wait on him. The point here is that Christ offered himself as a sacrifice to remove sin. Isaiah 53, 11 through, through, <coughs> through 12. And that he is coming again uh, to bring salvation to those who eagerly wait on him. Verse 28. That's what he's telling us here in verse 28. Uh, he's waiting. That's, the idea here is Jesus is saying to, yes, to us, yes, I am coming soon. And our response is Revelation chapter 22, verse 20. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Any comments or questions this morning? <laughs> well, yeah, they would have to know it was there, but you understand, it's Roman Catholicism, especially in the 15th century, if you study the history, you understand, all of us that are Christians, our history includes, I can't count, what, thousand years of Roman Catholicism? It includes it. It's part of our history as well. We broke out of that. That's what Martin Luther and all those guys did. Uh, Calvin, all those guys did. They broke us out of that. Um, basically, what and, and as you go into there, what you find is that the people who ran the Roman Catholic Church in the dark, dark ages were about as far from being redeemed as you can get. They were well with a couple of couple of, of uh, with a couple of uh, notable exceptions. Probably Benedict. He probably was a saved man when you read his writings. But for the most of these were unredeemed men who were who used the church, the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, as a power base. And it was a it was a and and they wanted to keep the people as ignorant as possible. They did not allow anyone to have a Bible. This is uh, Mary, when the whole Reformation hit England and Mary of Scots became queen. She, you had a Bible, you know, what the, you know what she did? She killed you. She disemboweled you. In fact, uh, Dr. MacArthur in his, uh, in his entryway to his house has a, I think he still has it. I guess he still has it. But anyway, he has a Bible from that period, from the 1500s. Uh, and the entire, about that much of the bottom, all the pages of that Bible are soaked in blood. 
because they disemboweled and dunked the Bible in there in the blood. Uh, that was that was the reign. It was a reign of terror, you know. And they didn't want, and and they wanted. They basically established dogmas that said the interpreter of Bible is the Roman Catholic Church, and the Bible is not sufficient. The dogma of the church is. And and so, why they did that? Why they perverted that? I can't answer that question. Uh, that's the minds of sinful, unredeemed men, and and. It's sad that that's what happens, but that's what happens. That's where, that's where, Mary Betty or uh, Baker, Barry, yeah, I get the names wrong, but anyway, came up with with her whole deal in Christian Science. You know, the the, the uh, unfortunately the Adventists who go off into all the law. They pick and choose what part of the law they want to keep. You know, they don't keep it all. But they pick and choose what part of the law they want to keep. It's it's the you know the Jehovah Witnesses that want to deny the Trinity, even though it's clearly taught. The, you want to you want to stumble them, take them to the Book of Revelation, and ask them to explain how Christ and God the Father are sitting on a single throne. Uh, they have a little problem with that one. But at any rate, you know those kinds of things are, are just because unredeemed men take this book and try to use it to their benefit. And I don't know how they came up with that, but it, it kept the people tied to the church. You see, you you want to because, huh? You were saved. Yeah, you were saved through the church and the dogmas of the church and keeping them and keeping these specific ordinances. I mean, you know, it's, it's I, I always this this one's the one I find amusing. One of the sacraments of the church is marriage, but their priests don't marry, so they don't get that sacrament. I guess I don't know how that works out, but. But, you know, those are those kinds of things they did, and it was to control people and power. What? Yes, well, when I was growing up before any of you, uh, <laughs> they, did not, uh, they did not speak English, the priests. Oh, no, no. There was nothing in English, and the people in the church did not have that. Yeah, exactly. They do have a Bible now, and, of course... I don't know, in the mid-50s, they started preaching in, in English. But before that... Yeah, they, it was all in Latin. No. It was all in Latin. Who speaks Latin? Any of you speak Latin? Yeah. Nobody. Nobody. They interpreted it for you. Yeah, they interpreted it for you. They told you what it meant. Any inter- yeah, exactly. And it was a power base. It basically was a power base. And it still is. And my friend. I have a lot of Catholic friends because... All the farmers were Catholic. But um, she told me that they were taught that if she should walk into a Protestant church, there was a picture of Jesus by the door, and you had to step on Jesus to get into the church. I said, that is not a problem. Yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah. Well, and then, you know, there's the kind of, you know, the interesting thing is, though, uh, those of you who were came with us from Grace Community uh, right before one of the last things we did there was bury a longtime member, Mark Landucci. Or, but before he died, his his background, of course, being Italian, was his family was Catholic. And when his father died, it was in a Catholic church, and he insisted I speak at that funeral. And it was like, Mark, the priest is not going to let me speak. You know, and he did. He, the guy, he actually let me speak, you know. And so I thought, okay, we got to watch this here, you know. I don't want him throwing me out before I finish, you know. So I took all the salvation passages and went through them in order, you know. I made, I made no comments on them too much, a little bit. Little, yeah, I couldn't help it, a little bit. But, and, I, and I was very careful to say, St. Matthew said, St. Paul said, just to, you know, placate. And, and, and it was like, they let me speak. And I had all these Catholic people coming up to me and thanking me. And I was like, you didn't hear that from him. You heard from him he was going to heaven because he got married and because he kept the communion and because he was baptized. You know, that's what the priest said. Just amazing. You know, just absolutely amazing. 
scariest funeral I ever did. <laughs> anyway, anyway, we got through it. So anyway, I, I really got off track, and we're getting late, so I better let you guys go. So anyway, yeah, thank you for that. But I, I can't answer you in full. But it's a power base, and it's, it's a very. And as you watch the current pope, it's very political. It's all about politics, and 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 association with power. Lord God, we, uh, we thank you this morning. We thank you that you are the gracious, loving God who in his mercy provided grace for us uh, who were totally unworthy, uh, who were totally lost, and had, could not find our way until Jesus came and opened our eyes that we might see and that we might enter into because of his sacrifice, because of his death and the pouring out of his blood, we might actually enter the very throne room of, of God himself, uh, that we are accepted in him. And for that, we give you immense praise. And we ask, Father, that uh, we would not be, be negligent in our worship and praise of you, for you are a great and awesome God. And we thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.